0: All right, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 25, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 30, a second to last sermon in this series of looking at the stories that Jesus told. And as we jump into it, um, I think I've told you this before. I don't remember. My hard drive's been basically deleted since the pandemic. So, you know, here we go. Uh so um, how long does it take before Halloween candy goes back? Anybody know? Uh, so in the day and age of Google, you can actually Google such things. We've had to do so as parents. And I I forget what it was. Somebody's like, what was it? And and I don't remember because my hard drive's been deleted. Uh, two to three months roughly is my guess. But come on, half that stuff is chemicals anyway. So it probably can last like, you know, 30 years and, you know, we'll be okay in a bunker, uh, with Halloween candy. But, but nevertheless, the reason I say that is when I was growing up, we didn't have Google right? And so you get these pieces of candy and there's no expiration dates on it. And the reason this was important for my life anyway uh, was because uh, I tended to be a little bit of a hoarder of my candy. So there was this phenomenon that happened inside of me, right? Halloween comes. I didn't really get to eat much candy uh, throughout the year. And, and so I got this bag of it. and And so I'd kind of binge on it. Well, first of all, I'd get home with my cousin. We were both only children, so we would barter and trade and get in fights about You know, what's going on? We would organize our candy. Anybody organize their candy? I did. Yeah, some of y'all organize your candy. Y'all are are weird, right? But it'd be like Nerds and Starburst and chocolate. Y'all can have your chocolate. I I love the Nerds and the Starburst. That was my happy place. But what happened was, after that first day of eating a lot, I'd kind of eat one piece the next day and one piece the next. And then, no kidding, there's a little view into my heart, there was this growing sense of fear and dread that eventually I would be out of candy seriously and so you know what happened my cousin would come over hey can i have another piece of candy no why I'm saving it for what mm. right <laughs> and i remember this is like a family story but uh, he, he says it i think he we talked about it this year on his birthday he said yo you remember how i came over in april right When's halloween october he's like i opened the drawer and i found your candy i did i hoarded it until basically we threw it away right You see, I I kind of golemized it, right? I'm like, my precious, right? I I kept it. There was fear. Eventually, it just turned into just straight laziness. I was just like, yeah, it's there. It's old. I don't even care anymore. Well, friends, as we draw to a close, especially of this season where Jesus is saying, hey, here's how you wait, right? Chapters 24 and 25 is all talking about how we wait as followers of Jesus Christ for his return. He's going away and he will one day return. So how do we wait? And today, what he's going to actually lean into with his followers is how we wait with regards to our stuff. The stuff of our lives. Here you're going to see it talking about money and work, quite frankly. So you can kind of say our abilities and our financial resources. But I think we could also blow that out into places like our time, uh, our relationships. But, but he's really going to lean into, hey, how do we then wait with our stuff for his return? And what I would argue is that sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, our hearts may be a little bit more reflective of what I experienced with my Halloween candy, where we could be prone to be stingy and fearful, tend to golemize things. We tend to be lazy, right? And that's the drift of the heart as we talk about God's stuff, and we'll get to that here in just a second. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. I'm actually going to motor through the whole thing. So just sit back, Bible in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen. But here's the story Jesus told. He says this: "For it will be like it will be like He's talking about the kingdom of God um, as we wait, right? It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. And also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the house... You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming I should have received what was my uh, what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast and and cast the worthless, worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Please pray with me. Well, Lord, we are venturing into a topic which suburban Americans typically don't like to talk about, our money and our work. Yet, as we search scriptures, money tends to be the thing that you, Jesus, talk about the most. Money and work are things that we clearly are called to make a part of our discipleship. Lord, would you cause us right now to remove the stigma of these are the things that we are to protect, to hoard, to build fences around, to not ever talk about? And Lord, would you make this an active part of our discipleship as we look to you and your generosity and your grace and your mercy and really your call in our lives? So, Holy Spirit, would you work in and through me? Would you work in every single one of us? And would you change our hearts as a result of sitting underneath your word? We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so the outline. We're going to be looking at the nature of our stuff. We're going to be looking at the character of our Savior. And then finally, how we approach this idea of stewardship. So that's where we're going today. And so here's the first one. We're going to look at the nature of our stuff. The first fundamental question, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, that we have to answer is whose stuff is I'm going to keep saying stuff. It bothers you. I'm sorry. But stuff is encompassing everything in our lives, our time, talent, treasure, relationships. And so the first question we come to is whose stuff is it anyway? And I say that because even in my prayer, we tend to think, especially in a nation where we're told of the American dream, where if you work hard enough and so on and so forth, then you can have your stuff. And do with it whatever you want. And I would just say Scripture completely teaches against that. And here's why I say that. First of all, you see in this passage the nature of our possessions. The Master goes away on a journey. The Master here is being likened to the triune God, Jesus. Right? I think both could fit that category. And Jesus clearly is getting ready to go away. Getting ready to go to the cross, send to be at the right hand, and they're waiting for his return. So so this parable he's teaching is saying, hey, I am going away. Here's how I want you to engage with that which I am leaving for you. The reason I say uh, the stuff is not our own, first of all, um, you see that the master, as he leaves in verse 15, he entrusts his servants with things called talents. Now, we've talked about this. This, you know, I'm mixed. I'm confusing y'all today because I've already said time, talents, and treasure. As I'm referring to it there, I'm talking about our abilities, our skill sets, right? But as it's talked about here in this passage, I'm going to try to be clear as I keep going. But he's actually talking about a measure of money. We've talked about this before. One talent equals about 20 years, uh, wage for a day worker. And so just to keep the math simple, he's giving five, two, and one. So five million, two million, and one million dollars to his servants as he's going away. Now, every single, or all three of these servants are making, are recognizing something. The first two in verses 20 and 22, they come back to their master after he's returned. They've, uh, They've traded well. They've invested his money well, and they've come back and they've doubled his money. And they said, hey, here's your money. I've doubled it. And even the last servant, who is depicted as the wicked one, in verse 25, says here, have what is yours. So fundamentally, we have to come to the conclusion, at least according to Scripture. Whether or not you believe it, okay. But if you if you don't believe that all things are His, you're not actually believing what the Scriptures teach. And let me give you an Old Testament passage that shows us this. Psalm 24, 1-2. to The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell within, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So what God is clearly saying is, is none of our stuff is actually our stuff. It is fully and completely His by virtue of the fact that He made it all, and He is God over all of it now there's other places in Scripture that talks about all that we have as being a gift from God, and that is very true. We need to be careful about taking that too far because a gift, right? Sometimes we think, as we think of gifts, at least at Christmas, you go, hey, I got a gift. I didn't pay for that. I didn't earn it. It was simply a gift, but now it's mine, and it's mine to control. And so I think Jesus is even tweaking that perspective of a gift a little bit and saying, hey, uh, as the Master gives you these things, it's not fully, you, you are. You have dominion over it for this season, but ultimately it is mine, Everything that we have is actually an investment which God makes in us, his servants. And he wants to be able to rely on us as we use it. All the stuff of life is to be viewed as responsibilities the Lord gives his people in the light of their abilities and opportunities to build his kingdom until he returns. That's the other thing that we need to see, see here is in verse 14, he says, it will be like. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. And so he's saying, as I leave you these raw materials of the kingdom, everything that you do with your money, with your work, with your relationships, really I'm leaving you to build my kingdom until I come back. The term here that we could use is stewardship. God has called us to be stewards. So let me give you some modern illustrations of what stewardship actually looks like. Imagine you're the curator of an art museum, right? This is a person who kind of uh, pulls in the right type of art. Uh, but the curator is also responsible for things like protecting the art for the owners. Oftentimes it's on loan or, or being rented by a museum. And so the curator needs to be, make really sure that, you know, uh, kids with peanut butter hands don't come up and, right? Or that there's security measures in place so people don't break in and steal it. But never at any time does a curator fall under this false assumption that these paintings are mine. I'm looking around the room and I see some CFPs, some certified financial planners, right? Let's put it in that category. How crazy would it be, right? If you go, what does a certified financial planner do? Well, you go to them and you're like, hey, here's my stuff. Please help me not have to retire at 98 years old, right? I want to retire a lot younger than that. Can you invest wisely, so that I can retire a lot younger, right? What would happen if that financial planner says, you know, I've been to school, I've done all the certifications, and this person just gave me their routing numbers. I've worked for this. This is my stuff. I'm going to go spend it on myself. You know what that's called? A Ponzi scheme, right? Financial planners are stewards. Stewards. Stewards of the resources that has been entrusted with them. How foolish would it be to go, this is mine? That's essentially the picture that Christ is painting. This isn't a Ponzi scheme. The Master has given you good things. and He's calling you to steward it well. So here's some questions. How do you view what you have? How do you view your time, your talents, and I mean abilities, And treasures. How do you view your relationships? Are they mine or are we stewards? Maybe when we talk about money, ask the question do I spend all my money on myself? Every pay raise, is it just to be able to buy a bigger house, increase that mortgage payment? Nicer cars? A new graphics card for my gaming PC? I mean, is that how we view every increase, every gift, every extra, every tax refund? That could be a warning light that we're actually living out the Ponzi scheme and not stewardship. Do we think strategically about financially investing in kingdom work? Do we think about that? And friends, I'm just going to say this. One of the primary vehicles Christ has left behind to accomplish his kingdom work is the church. Is the church part of your investment strategy? I'm not saying that because I'm on the payroll. I'm saying that because I deeply believe that Scripture calls us to that. Do we invest in the many good uh, parachurch organizations that are around us? The Young Life and the Surge, just as I'm looking around and I see faces. Doing that kingdom work. Are we investing in the name of Christ and mercy and justice for our neighbors around us? Are we doing that work of mercy ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. And friends, let's just expound that from our finances and say, think about our time. And if we get an hour back, is our first thought, how do I use this for myself? I'm going to go fishing. Does anybody around here go fishing? Is that a thing? It was back in Virginia. We used to go fishing. Um, and fishing's not bad. But when we get one of those hours back during the pandemic. It should be a warning light if the first thought that goes is, How can I? Dot, 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 dot. That's calling us at least to consider something different, to consult him through his word and through prayer. God, how would you have me use this? Maybe it is to go fishing. Maybe it is to increase wealth or to buy something. Those things aren't wrong. I don't want you to hear me say those things are wrong. Please don't hear what I'm not saying, right? But do we stop and just say, God, this is yours. How would you have me invest? Here's the second point. We need to look at the character of the master or the character of the Savior in this picture. Because, friends, we will never be generous. We will never be open-handed to do kingdom work if we are not convinced of the character of the one in which we're stewarding his things, his world. Verses 20 and 22. These are the master's response to the two who invested wisely, who created a return. And I really think as we look at this, it, you know, I, this is extra biblical, right? This is Anthony, not the Bible. But, but I get a sense as I read these verses where they come before him and they say, look, I've received your five talents and I bring you five talents more. There's, there's a giddiness, there's a joy as they come before him. Versus the one who had one who didn't have a return, he's like, I knew you were scary, and here's your money. By the way, the the third servant, he didn't lose it. He didn't lose the money. He gave the money right back to the master. There really was no true need for fear. Here's the character that we see here of the master. When these servants come back and they've uh, invested wisely. Verses 21 and 23, there's approval. Well done. There's praise. Good and faithful servant. Friends, can we just stop right there for a second? Can I just name that that well done, good and faithful servant is probably one of the most important phrases we long to hear in our lives. Yesterday I was at a graduation party, and the father stood up in front of a group of people, and he praised his son publicly. And it was funny because I watched the friends of the young man kind of giggle. And be like, huh, huh, huh right? Because that's what we kind of do as guys sometimes, something sentimental, we have to gig a little way. But I went home and I looked at my kids and I just said, I bet you 40 years from now, those folks are going to long to hear those words of their father, well done, good and faithful servant, not servant son. I think that is one of the deepest longings of our heart. To hear those we. Most look up to, admire, and love. Say, well done. Well done. That's the nature of our God. There's privileges. He says, you were faithful over a little, and I'm going to set you over much. He's generous. He's like, I'm going to give you more to steward. And then there's reward. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, I know. Y'all are probably sitting there thinking some of the things that I was thinking as I read this. Okay, Anthony, they doubled his money. Of course he's pleased with them, right? He could still be stingy. And maybe he is, seeing how he looked at this third servant. But, but I think that last phrase, enter into the joy of your master, I actually think that shows us something different. That's not the reply of a stingy master. That's someone who is waiting, kind of spring-loaded, to shower joy on those he's entrusted much to. If we look at the character of God throughout the rest of Scripture, we're told that we serve a God who who desires to sing over us, who desires to lavish us with riches. And so, friends, do you see that as the character of God? Spring-loaded to move towards us. We see that on the cross. He gave us all that he could Through the death of His Son on the cross, how much more does He desire to lavish gifts upon you? That's the Gospel. He is not a stingy Master. I've told this before as well, but I remember this is a profound moment in parenting when I was with my son and we were building this frame to go over top of this garden we had just planted, to protect it from birds and and whatnot, and he was little and there's no way he could drill a straight hole and put screws in there and staple the mesh around it. Uh, but, but it was just this beautiful moment where I'm helping him. Like sometimes I literally had my hand over his little hand holding onto the drill, drilling the holes. And I just remember watching him light up with pleasure over the work that he was doing. Now, he didn't do it perfectly, but man, he was just so pumped. And, and it brought me such joy to be a part of the imperfect work that he was doing. Friends, that's what we see even three chapters later. That even as Jesus said, Hey, I'm leaving you to steward these things for my kingdom, he's not expecting perfection. In fact, he says, I'm going to be with you as you build. This is Matthew 25. Matthew 28 fearful disciples go up to the mountain. He's like, Go make disciples. And they are shaking in their boots. And he says, Don't worry, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Peter's saying at one point in the book of Luke, He's like, I am scared to go before the council knowing he's going to get persecuted. And and Jesus said, don't worry, I'll give you the words to say at the time. As Jesus calls us to steward and build his kingdom, he's right there holding our hands. And he's taking joy in the work that we do. So here's the great danger in this passage is the mischaracterization of Jesus. Did you hear it? Beginning in verse 24, he makes the wrong call about the master. I knew you to be a hard man who reaped where you didn't sow. So he's basically like, you go into other people's field and you harvest their grain. I knew you to be a hard man. He made the wrong call about his master and and the wrong call bred the wrong emotion. He said, I was afraid. Verse 25. You see, when we make the wrong call, we don't understand the true nature of who God is. It breeds fear. We will begin to hoard and be stingy. That wrong emotion ultimately yielded the wrong actions. Verse 25, what did he do with his talent? He dug a hole and he buried it. And the master calls his bluff, right? If you keep going to verse 26, he said, Okay, so your impression of me is that I reap where I don't sow, that I'm a harsh master. Well, if if that was really what you believed, then you would have acted differently. You would have actually invested it. So I could at least get some interest, if that's really who you believe I am. But, but I think he calls his bluff, where he says, you, you wicked and slothful servant. You see, I think essentially what the master is picking up on is the fact that heh, this wasn't a misinterpretation of me at all. At least, maybe it was in part, but it was also laziness. You just didn't want to. The master does really the flip side of what uh, he offered to the other servants. He condemns them. He calls them wicked and slothful. He corrects them. He says, you ought to have invested. He removes privileges. He takes the talent from them and he punishes them. He casts them into darkness, verse 30. And friends, I, I would just say this, is we do need to take our stewardship seriously. And those are, those are hard words to read. But what Jesus is saying is there's actually something deeper going on spiritually if we're actually mischaracterizing who God is and we're being lazy with this stuff. It might indicate that there is no real relationship with God at all. And in part, because if we look at the character of the gospel, what is it? 2 Corinthians 8 9. Uh, Though he was rich, became poor, talking about Jesus on the cross, so that by his poverty we might become rich. The gospel is generosity. The gospel is that level of investment. And he said, if you're unwilling to engage in kingdom work, if you are going to be stingy and slothful and mischaracterize me, you've really missed the gospel. So here's the last point is how we approach stewardship. When I was in Lake Tahoe, oh, this was all the way back in the year 2000, our director of the summer project, uh, for we, we worked with a crew, uh, he stood up and he said, hey, uh, he was talking about investing in the kingdom and being stewards of what you had. And, and, and he was actually encouraging us to take risk. By the way, I really believe at the heart of this is, is some risk aversion. And right? I do think fear was a part of it. So he hit it because there was an aversion to taking a risk for the sake of the kingdom. My friend Brian told the story about how he had some money for his mom to invest. He had several thousand dollars and And he said, yeah, my, my, they lived in Seattle. And he said, my financial planner came and said, I think I have a couple stocks you should invest in. And I looked at it and they're like, yeah, they're startups. I'm not real sure. It could be too risky. I'm not going to invest. You know what the two stocks were? (laughs) Microsoft and Starbucks. They didn't invest. He did the calculation. It was like in the millions they would have made if they would have kept their money in that duration of time. I don't know what a bad day feels like all the time, but I guarantee you that was a bad day, at least reflecting on it, uh, knowing that you are out that much. And so he was just encouraging to take risk. And friends, I would just say this, at least a part of what faithfulness looks like as we think through our stewardship is risk. It's risk for the sake of the gospel. Some commentators argue that this is kind of a side shot at the Pharisees who They wanted their faith without risk. They made it absolutely unobtainable by the normal folk by building wall upon wall upon wall of religion around it. And I think in part, Jesus is saying, hey folks, part of your stewardship is going to be risking for my sake. There is a danger when our faith becomes status quo, when our stuff just becomes stuff instead of tools and raw materials to build the kingdom." Approaching stewardship here, what we see is a call to faithfulness. And faithfulness is simply using one's God-given abilities and materials productively for the kingdom. And friends, this is just as vital an aspect of our discipleship as our prayer life and our time in the word, our sharing of our faith. And what this passage promises, it would be rewarded with additional opportunities to serve God faithfully and fruitfully in this life and in the new heavens and the new earth. Let me give you a couple of other ideas from this passage. I'll be brief, but the first one has to do with our work. Our work, right? What we put our hand to day in and day out. And I'm not necessarily, I am at least talking about how we earn a wage, but I am certainly not talking about vocation, and that's another word for work or calling, as being simply something to which we earn a wage for. I would say uh, parenting, right? That is work, and we certainly don't get paid, right, for that. Folks who are in retirement, even though you're not getting paid, there is a vocation and a calling that God is calling you to. And so let me just say this, because I think there's just, there's a tide in our culture where uh, there is a bend towards idleness, I-D-L-E, right? Not idolatry, but to be idle, like a car just running, idling, sitting there doing nothing. There's a problem about this in the church of Thessalonica, right? They were sitting there waiting for Jesus to return. They had like lawn chairs and they were looking up at the sky just kind of waiting for Jesus to come back. They weren't working. They weren't earning money. They weren't bettering their city. They weren't providing for their families. And Paul said, hey, church, admonish the idol. Call them out in a loving way and tell them this is not what I've called you to. Second Thessalonians 3 says, have nothing to do with the idol. It says, warn them. First Timothy 5.8 says clearly that if one doesn't provide for the members of their household, they have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Friends, I just want to tell you, God takes our vocation and our work very seriously. Alistair McGrath, another pastor, talks about Calvin's view, John Calvin's view on work. He said, the, ideal, uh, the idea of a calling or vocation is first and foremost about being called by God, that's our primary calling, to serve him. Within his word, or within his world. And he said, Work was seen as an activity by which Christians could deepen their faith. To do anything for God and to do it well was a fundamental hallmark of authentic Christian faith. And I believe it needs to be for us today. And the reason this is important is because, first of all, the the work of creation, you know what God is seen as? A worker. You know what happened before the fall? God created work. Genesis 1 26 to 28. He creates Adam and Eve and he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, that's work, and have dominion over it. That's work. That's pre-fall. Jesus in John five seventeen, he said, my father is at work and I am also working. Jesus himself is a worker. Here's the other thing I want you to hear me say is that each of us are uniquely supplied. Each of us are uniquely supplied. We have this comparison game where you're like, oh, God hasn't blessed me with a whole lot. I can't really be a good and faithful steward. But but what I think, verses 21 and 23, right? God's same response to the two stewards, one who he gave $5 million to and one who he gave two to, he said the same thing to them. He didn't say, better done, better and faithful servant, because I gave you a lot more. He said, no, well done, good and faithful servant to both of them. There is no... um, There are no small tasks in God's kingdom work. Last week as David Donnelly, part of our special needs ministry here, got up at the 1130 service, and one of the main ways he could communicate is only via an iPad. And he did the congregational prayer via an iPad. Friends, i got to be honest with you. I think God was smiling ear to ear at the work of our brother on that day. Doing the work of the kingdom. Praying in God's house with God's people in something that was very labor-intensive for Him. I once heard the different car analogy, so I just bought a minivan again. I know y'all are out there judging me now that I've said that. You're like, I like SUVs, I like sports cars. What's a minivan, right? I like minivans. They're functional. All right? Friends, the Lord manufactures different cars. Some of us are electric cars. Some of us are minivans. Some of us are pickup trucks. Some of us are sports cars. When I get in my minivan, I'm not beating on the steering wheel saying, you can't go zero to 150 in three seconds. What's your problem? God builds us differently. Each car is pleasing when it performs the task that suits the design. That's how we need to lean into whatever God has given us relative to how he has created us. And friends, let me just end with this. Our work, our time, our talent, our treasures, our relationships, none of it can be for ourselves. If we view those things as being for ourselves, as our fulfillment, it will destroy us. It was never meant to satisfy. When we work for God in everything we do, including our vocational callings, we truly find purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction that we all so desperately seek. If we're working for ourselves, we will grow increasingly anxious and depressed and angry and bitter, and we will hoard and we will clench our fists. But if we see our God as saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, and we begin to loosen our grip on our belongings and on our time, we're actually able to be fulfilled even in the most mundane, washing dishes to the glory of God. Friends, the love of Jesus Christ frees us to boldly build His kingdom. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, Lord, I pray that maybe Your Word blew the top off of our taboo topics the things we're unwilling to talk about. I pray that we see that just as much a part of our discipleship and our following of you as everything else that we put in the most important categories. Make us generous because you're generous. Make us diligent because you're diligent. Give us freedom because we know that in you, we already have your smile. We love you, Lord. Thanks for this time. In your name, amen.